Thank you for tuning in. We trust you will feel encouraged, uplifted, and inspired to build God's kingdom with us. Enjoy the message. I bring greetings on behalf of the uh, Brainerd Baptist Church where I pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you're ever in the U.S., come see us. It's one of the most beautiful places in America. Mountains and rivers and rock climbing and kayaking. Really beautiful place we love. Uh, they, are, uh, they should be just about getting ready for, well, just maybe waking up. It's about 4.45 in the morning there back home, and so they're getting ready for all of our services today at the different campuses and venues, so pray for them as they get ready to lead. I'm thankful to be, you, be with you this morning. I'm glad that you let me be here, even though I talk funny, and I uh, hope that you can understand me as I go. Uh, we're going to spend some time together this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah in the Old Testament, chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. While you're turning there, uh, this is my second time in South Africa. We love the continent of Africa deeply. My wife and I lived in West Africa almost 20 years ago, and we planted churches in the bush uh, in in Burkina Faso and uh, worked a little bit in Ghana across the border. And then I've worked in a number of different countries in Africa. And then we were here in uh, Johannesburg for the first time two and a half years ago. Uh, I have three children, and uh, I brought my wife. Tracy, we've been married for almost 20 years. She is definitely the better part of me. I wish you could meet her. She's tiny. She's very little. Uh, she comes up to about here on me. It's true. On my, when I stand on my knees, I'm taller than she is. She's a very little thing. But we've been married for almost 20 years. In fact, she's the smallest one in our family. All three of our children are taller than she is now. And uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter named Grace, Sarah Grace. And then I have, uh, or she's about to be 16. And then I have a daughter who's about to be 14. And her daughter is Kessid Noel. Now, Kessid is an unusual name. It's a variation of the Hebrew word chesed, which means the loving kindness of God. It's the closest Old Testament concept to grace. I like grace quite a lot, and so both of my daughters have a variation of grace. If I had a third daughter, I would name her Charis, the Greek word for grace. I very much like grace. And then I have a son. Uh, My son, we were, I brought my whole family, my wife and my two daughters, to Johannesburg two and a half years ago uh, because we came here to adopt my son. My son is adopted from Lesotho. He's from Maseru and uh, was raised in an orphanage in Maseru and uh, moved in with us two and a half years ago. He's about to be 13 years old. His given name is Lepetesane, and uh, but we gave him uh, an American name because we were afraid that he would have a hard time in school with the American kids trying to learn his name. So he, we, we named him after a Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So his name is Haddon Lepetesane Fries, and uh, he's a really, really good kid. I wish we could have brought him this week, but he is now playing American football. And uh, last week he started practicing. He's very, very excited, and he's big. And uh, the coaches like having him play American football. So my family, I'm ready to go see them. I've been on the road three of the last four weeks in Latin America for two weeks, a week home and then a week here over the past week. And I go home in about eight hours to go see them tonight. And so I'm ready to go see my family and sleep in my bed. I want to talk to you. Yeah, I am. I have not slept very well this week, but I slept last night really well. So I'm, I'm excited about today. I want to talk to you about the mission of God this morning. Uh, my field of study, I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years, a missionary for a few years as well, um, but even though I'm a, I'm a pastor, my particular passion, my heart, uh, and my academic study revolves around the, the study of missiology, which is the study of mission, 
And um, Des Henry, who will be here this evening to speak in the evening service, one of my good friends, is one of the premier missiologists on the African continent. You're blessed to have him here in Johannesburg. He's one of the only uh, people with a PhD in missiology, so he's my friend. We've been working together for many years. He's the reason I came to South Africa this week. I love missiology. I love the study of mission. At our church, we like to say that we exist to help those who are far from God become committed followers of Jesus Christ. And we like to use the description that we are a sent and sending people. In other words, that we have been sent by God. Every follower of Jesus has been sent on mission by God. And we are always, and at the same time, a sending people. That we are sending each other to our neighborhoods and to the nations. And so, uh, because of that, I love studying the mission of God in the Bible. And I'm convinced you cannot read the Bible rightly unless you interpret it through the lens of a God on mission. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, representative of all of humanity, they get, uh, they're, they're in the garden, the garden is perfect, their life is perfect, they sin, and God begins to walk through the garden, and from the moment God calls out, Adam, where are you, in the early part of Genesis 3, from that moment until today, God has been at work pursuing humanity drawing us into relationship with him and inviting every follower of Jesus to join him on that mission. And I think often we think of the Old Testament as distinct from the New Testament. And I want to, sh- I want to show you today, I want us to see today the mission of God in the Old Testament in this book of Jeremiah as the prophet Jeremiah under the inspiration of God speaks to the exiles, the Jewish exiles who had been captured from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. So with that said, I'd like to read the text together. Uh, J- Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to begin in verse 4 and go through verse 14 At my church, we are a little bit old-fashioned in this one way. We like to honor the reading of God's word by standing as we read it. So would you mind standing with me as we read, beginning in verse 4? I won't keep you long. I'll let you sit back down really quickly. Of course, you all are charismatic, so standing with the hands in the air is much more comfortable for you anyway, right? It's our Baptist churches where they complain about this. But this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles that I have deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for your sons and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you. In my name, I've not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration, for this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you, and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place which I have deported you, from which I have deported you. Pray with me if you will. Jesus, we come today acknowledging that we are here uh, only because you are worthy, that you are the king of all things, and that you are worthy of all praise, honor, glory, And we're glad to be able to give that to you today. 
But Lord, we need to hear from you, and so we pray that you would speak in and through your word this morning. Lord, the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. So Lord, as we lift up the word of God this morning, we pray that my wisdom would not be significant, our intelligence would not be significant. We pray that the word of God would be central to what we do and that you would speak in and through it. Lord, you promise us in your word. For those whom you predestined, you for, uh, for those whom you foreknew, you predestined to be conformed into the image of your Son. Lord, in other words, the purpose, the destiny of every follower of Jesus is that they would be conformed or shaped into the image of Jesus. Lord, I pray today that as you take your word, you would press it deep into our hearts, you would use it to conform us into the image of Jesus, and that we would leave today more like Jesus than when we came. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So let me, if, if, you'll, if you'll allow me, just for a moment, let me set the historical and geographical context of this passage that we're looking at today. So if you think about your biblical chronology, your biblical timeline, this, this experience, this prophecy, this letter from Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles occurs at the same time uh, of the exile of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So if you're familiar with those Old Testament stories, this is the same group of people. These same exiles who have been exiled from Babylon, uh, from, sorry, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, they had been taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a vile, immoral, disgusting, godless kingdom. They were awful, inhumane. This was the, the, the empire that was known for conquering a people and then peeling the skin off their enemies and hanging the skin from the city walls. This was the empire that would conquer a city, gather all the children in the middle of the city, and slaughter the children in front of their parents. These are the kind of people that had taken Israel captive. All right, so Babylon, in contemporary days, so today, Babylon would be approximately where Baghdad, Iraq is, okay? So if you're thinking about your global map, if you think about Baghdad in the Middle East, that's basically where Babylon was. This is the same empire that Jonah had to deal with when Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was also part of the Assyrian Empire. And Nineveh, ancient Nineveh, is modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. Same city, all right? So when you understand, this helps us understand why the Jewish exiles were so distraught. They were so upset. It wasn't just that they had been taken from their homes, but they had been taken from their homes in the promised land, taken to Babylon, and being ruled by this vile, immoral, godless empire. Maybe a a better modern-day analogy that would help us illustrate this is is that uh, the Assyrian Empire in Mosul and Baghdad, or Nineveh and Babylon, uh, would be equivalent to ISIS today, the Islamic State today. Think about that. Beheading their enemies, right? Slaughtering in mass. So imagine now if you were Jonah and God called you to leave Johannesburg and go to, uh, go to Mosul to reach ISIS. Or imagine if you were captured by ISIS, taken from Johannesburg and brought to Baghdad. That's exactly what's happened to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 29. 
All right, so that sets the stage. So now you, all of a sudden we're a little more sympathetic to Jonah when Jonah didn't, want, Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to receive grace, right? And here's the truth. If I was Jonah, I'd have probably thought the same thing. No, God, I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them to be destroyed, right? This is what Jonah thought. The, the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, they didn't want to be in Babylon. They wanted to be back in the, in, in the, uh, in the uh, promised land. They wanted to be back in Jerusalem, which God had given to them. And they found themselves in exile. So what does this have to do with you and me? What does this have to do with the South African church or the global church today? See, the reality is is that each of us are in exile at this moment. We are exiles, those of us who are followers of Jesus, right? God created the world exactly as he wanted it, this perfect created order. He said of it, it is good. He created man and woman, and then he said of us, it is very good, Sin entered the equation. Eve and then Adam both sinned before God, and they were sent out of the garden. They were, listen to me, exiled out of the garden and out of the presence of God. By the way, what is the premier promise of Scripture? Have you ever thought about this? The ultimate promise of Scripture is the presence of God. It's the singular promise of Scripture. From the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament, I will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people to the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us to the promise of Revelation 21, behold, I am coming and I will make all things new and I will dwell among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. In other words, Emmanuel, the God who is with us, is the great promise of all of Scripture. And therefore, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the promise, they revoked the promise, and they were separated from the garden, from the presence of God, and they began to dwell in exile. You and I today are the continuation of that, and as followers of God, we are currently living in exile out of our homeland, anticipating a return to our homeland. Only the Bible says instead of it being the garden, it will be a city, right? The Bible describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where God will establish, as he says in Revelation 21, this new thing. Behold, I am making all things new. That speaks to God's restorative or resurrecting activity that will come in the future. And so you and I are in what theologians have often referred to historically as the time between the times, between the garden and the city, as we look back towards our failure in the garden, we live in the midst of exile looking forward, as Romans chapter 8 says, with groaning, longing for Christ to return and establish his eternal kingdom when all will be made right and we will dwell with him. Once again, the presence of God with his people. So, We're at exiles right now. So when we look at Jeremiah chapter 29, and God the Father speaks through the Holy Spirit to Jeremiah the prophet, and Jeremiah conveys this to the nation of Israel, he says to them, as exiles in a foreign land, this is how you engage the culture around you. This is instructive to us today about how we live as exiles. So setting the table in that way, let's walk through the text together and let me very quickly show you four characteristics of living as a missionary church in exile. The first thing I want you to see is this, that our presence as exiles is a result of God's good plan. Our presence as exiles is a result of God's good plan. Watch the text with me. Take a look with me at verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the exiles, listen to this language, that I have deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Go to verse 7. 
Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Go to verse 14. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. Notice the language. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Now, here's the thing. The nation of Israel believed themselves to be the favored children of God, right? Sort of the favored nation, the favored people, given the promised land. Now, Babylon had conquered them, taken them to exile. Life is not very good, right? Life is difficult. It's painful. It's a foreign land. They don't understand the customs and the language, and the people around them are idol worshipers. They don't worship the God of the universe. And the Jewish nation believed that something was wrong. Babylon, why was Babylon victorious? They believed themselves to sort of be under the authority of God. I'm sorry, under the authority of Babylon. And maybe they believed that God had fallen asleep or that God had forgotten them or maybe God really didn't love them. And don't we all have that fear in the back of our hearts that maybe God really doesn't love us like the preacher says that he loves us? So whatever the case might be, the Israelites find themselves grappling with where they are and wondering where God is in the midst of it. And God says to them over and over and over in this text, you are in Babylon, not because Babylon is mighty, but because I am. You're in Babylon because I placed you there. Now this poses a theological challenge for us. What's the theological challenge? Why would God allow his children to experience pain and difficulty? Right? Why does this happen? We ask the question all the time, right? Why does God allow good thing, uh, bad things to happen to good people? Well, first and foremost, there is no such thing as good people, right? We all know that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are broken. All of us are in need of redemption, right? So there is no such thing as good people in the first place. But one of the things we see consistently throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is that pain precedes blessing and death precedes resurrection. It happens over and over and over again, and God often allows and even orchestrates the pain for our good and his glory. There's no greater example in Scripture than the story of Jesus. Consider with me Acts chapter 4. Peter, the apostle, is preaching in Jerusalem about the crucifixion of Christ. And in Acts chapter 4, as he preaches, he says to the gathered crowd, listen to this, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, don't miss this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, that which happened to Jesus, the mock trial beating, the crown of thorns, the nails, the cross, the rejection, all of that was part of God's good plan. Why would God allow Jesus, why would God cause Jesus to go through that sort of pain? Because God loves and wants to redeem you, right? Jesus' pain equals your resurrection, And if there was not the pain of Jesus, we understand this, right, because of the the necessity of blood sacrifice to provide forgiveness of disobedience to God. In other words, sacrifice was necessary because we failed God and and had been, you know, kicked out of the garden. In order for us to be made right with God, a perfect blood sacrifice had to be offered. If that was not the, the case, if Jesus did not suffer, if Jesus did not die, you and I would not be here right now. 
And if this is true in Jesus' life, why would it not be true necessarily in our life? Look at Job's story, right? The story of Job in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. The wealthiest, most successful man in the world at that time, he loses everything. He loses his possessions. He loses his children. He loses his livelihood. And what does he say in Job chapter 1? He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He was affirming the authority of God, and listen, he wasn't believing that God enjoys causing pain in the life of his children. Job simply understood that even in the midst of the pain, he could trust God, that God was believable, and that even when God allowed or caused painful experiences to occur in the life of his servant, he did so for a redemptive purpose. Now, some of you say, but Micah... God didn't do that to Job. Satan did that to Job. But I want you to remember, Job is the one who said the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And the Bible says in the very next verse, and in saying this, Job did not sin. In other words, Job was right in what he said. You say, well, then what was Satan's part to play in it? Do not miss this. Satan is a dog on God's leash. Right? Does Satan have power? Of course he has power. But it's interesting to me that in the story of Job, Satan has to ask permission from God before he does anything, and Satan never does. Satan's more obedient than my kids are. Have <laughs> you ever paid attention to that in the book of Job? Satan does exactly what God tells him he can do and no further. So when God allows difficult experiences to happen in our lives, we can trust him, believing that he is working for his glory and our good. So what does all of this have to do with me? It has to do everything with us. It helps us to understand that wherever we find ourselves in the moment and the place, the time that we find ourselves, we are there not because of some accident, but because God in his wisdom and providence has placed us there for our good and his glory. That means that rather than being sort of disgruntled Longing to live in a different place or to have something different, there should be a sense of contentment in our lives, satisfied with where God has placed us and curious about how God is using us to see the kingdom of God made known in the place where we call home. This is what he was trying to convey to the Jewish exiles. Our presence in exile is a result of God's good plan. Second thing I want you to see is this. Our responsibility as exiles, okay, we're here because God wants us to be here. What are we to do? Our responsibility as exiles is to integrate into society, not escape from society. Notice the language beginning in verse 5. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, find a wife, have children, give your children in marriage, and then let them have kids. Multiply there and do not decrease. The Israelite people were eager to abandon their exile. They wanted to use whatever means possible to leave exile behind to escape back to their homeland. Now, you've got to understand that there were false prophets among the Israelites that we're going to read about here in just a moment who were deceiving the Israelites and telling them that they would only be in exile for two years or less. And so the Israelite belief was all we have to do is sort of hunker down and survive on the outskirts of culture, and then he's going to get us out of here and he's going to take us back home. But this language denies that, Right? This language seems to indicate they're going to be there for a long time. You're going to get married, you're going to have children, and they're going to have children. Build houses, plant gardens, eat food. This is years and years and years and years of living. See, here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ today is prone to find ourselves uncomfortable in an ungodly environment and to pull away from that context, isolate ourselves with other people who believe like we do, 
and create sort of a Christian bubble or Christian subculture where we never have to engage the the larger culture around us with questions of the gospel. And then we wonder why nobody's believing in Jesus, right? Maybe it's because no Christians are really engaging in their communities in light of the kingdom of God. Now, I, I don't know how much this is true in the South African context. In the U.S. context, we have this massive Christian subculture, right? We have Christian music and Christian products and Christian T-shirts and Christian movies. And uh, I like to say that you know it's a Christian product when it costs twice as much and works half as well, you know? And so some of you guys have seen the same Christian movies that I've seen before. They're not very good, are they? We have this sort of Christian environment where we can completely segregate ourselves from the culture at large. And what he says to the, the Israelite exiles is don't do that. Settle yourself in Babylon. Build, build houses and, and dig down deep with deep roots in the culture as a reflection of the kingdom of God. We can't live as if we're trying to escape life. Too many Christians have this theology of, of, I call it a secret agent theology, that we're sort of here hiding out in the culture and Jesus is going to sort of swoop in on the big black helicopter and take us out of here and we're all going to go home someday. And so we're all just sort of isolating ourselves on the edge of culture, just hoping to survive. Nobody's thriving. Nobody's abiding, right? We're just sort of hoping to survive. We need to abandon the secret agent sort of culture that hates the world and instead recognize that God has placed us here for his purposes, learn to love the world, dig down deep roots in the culture around us as ambassadors for the kingdom of God. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Understand that when we do this, our willingness to embrace our cultural environment, not escape it, is ultimately a reflection of the character of Jesus. Make your own attitude, Paul says in Philippians 2.6, make your own attitude the same as that of Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, and he took on the likeness of men. When we abandon our rights and we embed ourselves in a cultural environment for the purpose of being a reflection of the kingdom of God, we become more like Jesus. Put it more succinctly, if you're not on mission trying to engage the culture and reach people for Jesus, you're not growing in Christ. This is a part of our sanctification process. The third thing I want you to see in the text is this. Okay, first we know we're here because God wants us to be here. We know our responsibility is to integrate into culture, not try and escape from it. How are we to function as we integrate into culture? Look at verse 7. Our presence and our goal as an exile should be should lead to the success of our city. Verse 7 says, Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Now, your translation might say, Seek the peace of the city or the blessing of the city. Pursue the well-being of the city is what my translation says. The word well-being here is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, right? Somebody tell me what the Hebrew word shalom means. Peace, yeah, of course. So then the question becomes, what does peace mean? So I grew up in a home, I've got a younger brother and a younger sister. My brother's two years younger than me, my sister is four years younger than me, and my brother and I are about the same height, and uh, he's a little heavier than I am, he's a little more muscular than I am, that doesn't take much, but he's a little more muscular than I am, and we used to just fight all the time as kids, man. I mean, we'd wrestle, and you know, we'd go after each other, and I broke his glasses a few times, and it was always his fault, he was always wrong, but we used to do this all the time. And my mom would beg for peace, right? She just wanted no fighting, just seeking shalom in our house, right? But I think sometimes when we think of shalom, that's what we think of shalom as, right? It's the absence of conflict. But a biblical understanding of shalom is much more significant than that. 
Shalom is not merely the absence of conflict. Shalom is the holistic blessing of God on a people and a place. Now, I work in the Muslim world a lot. I have a lot of friends who are Muslim. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time in multiple North African countries working with Muslim imams and that sort of thing. And uh, we have this funny sort of engagement. It's not interfaith. You know, I'm not a big fan of interfaith. We all hold hands, sing kumbaya, pretend we all believe the same thing. Not a big fan of that at all. Uh, we, we, we engage one another, but we're very honest about what we believe. And I was on a Q&A panel at our church with an imam and a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, Muslim imam, and myself. We had this little panel discussion at our church. And somebody from the crowd was asking a question. And they said, Micah, do you believe these other guys are going to hell when they die? I said, well... Um, I think anybody who doesn't trust in Jesus is going to go to hell when they die, so that means there's people in my church who are probably heading there. But yeah, I think that's probably true of these guys up on the platform, but I said my imam friend probably believes the same about me, and he said, I do. And uh, so we get it all out in the open. We're pretty honest about each other. We share, you know, I share my faith with them and that sort of thing. But in the Muslim world, for those of you who have ever engaged in the Muslim world, you know this, right? There's an Arabic greeting that you use when you see someone who's Muslim. You say, assalamu alaikum. Right? And what does salam alaikum mean? It means the peace of God be on you. And they respond back, alaikum salam. Again, and God's peace be upon you, right? It's not a uniquely Muslim concept. It's an Arabic. It's a Middle Eastern concept that is very closely connected to shalom. Salam in the Arabic and shalom in the Hebrew, almost exactly the same thing, the holistic blessing of God on a people and a place, right? And so notice again what... what God is saying through Jeremiah to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29, he's saying, I want you to set down deep roots in the city, make it your home, not so that you become like the culture as much as so that you can seek the shalom of the kingdom of God in that place. Advocate for the holistic blessing of God on the people and the place that I've called you. Now, the thing is, it seems odd for us as Christians to think about God blessing non-Christians, Now, he does this every day anyway, right? We often, in theological terms, call this common grace, right? There are regular graces that God offers to all people, whether you trust him or not, right? Everybody can enjoy majestic views in creation. I remember the first time I ever went to the Grand Canyon as an adult. It was a few years ago. Our church works in, uh, does a bunch of church planting in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a very, very, very long way from where we live, and it's a long flight, but we go over there every once in a while. And I was there with my wife. And I was standing on the ridge of the Grand Canyon, one of the most amazing natural, you know, creations in all of the world. And we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon as the sun set over the mountain. And as the sun set over the the canyon and the mountain, it was amazing. There was like 800 people standing there, and it went absolutely silent. And somebody whispered beside me. They said, it seems like a cathedral right now. And I think God designed that in the world. I mean, the, nation, the, the heavens declare the glories of God, right? The handiwork of God, the Bible says. The creation itself speaks to the character and nature of God. That's what we would call a moment of common grace. Everybody there realized there's something sort of divine about this moment, right? Even non-believers could experience that, that expression. So it seems odd for us to talk about God blessing non-believers. You know, this is exactly what the prophet tells uh, Israel to do for Babylon. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Micah. I don't know that I want God to bless where I live, Right? You don't know the corruption, or you don't know how bad the politicians are. I mean, listen, I come from the U.S. We know bad politicians, man. We've got them all over the place. You say, but you don't understand. I don't understand necessarily your particular context, but here's what I do know. None of us have a context worse than Babylon. None of us live in a place more corrupt, immoral, and godless than Babylon. And if God can call the Israelites to seek the shalom of that godless place, he can call you and me to do the same thing in the places that we call home today. 
So how do we seek shalom? There's two ways in which we seek shalom. First, we seek spiritual shalom, right? We declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we invite every person who does not know Christ, who's never surrendered their life to Jesus, we invite them to trust Christ by confessing their sin, declaring their need for him, trusting him, and asking him to save them, right? You all as a church are trusting and believing God to help save 500 people in and through your church this year. That's a magnificent goal as you desire to seek spiritual shalom in the lives of those who are far from God. But then we also advocate for a physical shalom, right? That means that there are things in our culture that we know are broken, and as followers of Jesus, we work towards fixing those things, not just because it's good, but because it's Christ-like, right? We try and see education standards increased and healthcare enhanced and economic situations fixed, and we try and care for those who are victims of sex trafficking and those who are orphans, widows, We don't just do that because it's politically correct or nice for us to do. We do it because when King Jesus comes to rule and reign, those things will be no more. And as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we advocate for shalom as an expression of our faith and as a reminder to the world around us that this is what it looks like when King Jesus establishes his reign. We advocate against racism. Why? Not just because it's nice or makes sense, but because in the kingdom of heaven... All the the dividing walls, the Bible says, that keep us apart are broken down in and through the gospel. We intentionally, and my family, uh, adopted a child of a different race because we want our family to be a reflection of the kingdom of God to those who live around us. The reconciliation that God builds and brings in and through the gospel. So we we seek spiritual and physical shalom. Very quickly, let me get to this last point. Why do we do all of this? God places us here on purpose. God calls us to invest in the culture, to do this as we seek shalom, to what end? From verse 8 all the way through the end of the text, in verse 14, I'm convinced what he's telling us is we work toward prosperity and restoration as a foreshadowing of God's ultimate restoration. Now notice what happens beginning in verse 8. First, he takes down the false prophets. In verses 8 and 9, he says, you got these guys, they're preaching among you. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what they say, but church history tells us that they were preaching that they would only be in exile two years or less. And he says to the exiles, don't listen to them. Then notice what he says in verse 10. This is sobering. He says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. In other words, I will come back to you, and I will fulfill my promise concerning you to restore you to the promised land, Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't seem sobering at first glance, but I want you to understand what he's saying. These Jewish people who were hiding out on the edge of the culture, who were trying to just sort of survive until they could get home, who believed that they would be home very soon, he was looking every one of those adult Jewish exiles in the eye and saying to them, you will die in exile. You will never see the promised land. Now, that's difficult for these Jewish exiles to get their arms around. The promised land that God had given them was gone, and they would never in their lifetime see it again. But what does he go on to say? But he goes on to say, but, but I promise you, I keep my word, right? I will come back and fulfill my promise. And then he says in verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for a disaster, to give you a future and a hope. We've used this verse often as if, as if in heaven there's a big whiteboard, right? And all the way down the left-hand side are all of our names. And out to the right, if we'll just be good little Christian boys and girls, here's all the good things God's going to do for us. But that's a misunderstanding of this text. 
He is saying to a terrified, his terrified people who are frightened, scared, paralyzed even, saying to them as they hear that they'll never make it back to the promised land alive, stay faithful because I will make it right in the end. I like to call Jeremiah 29.11 an anchor text. It's an anchor text. It roots us to the character of God. He's saying to them, do this. Be faithful for your children. Be faithful for your grandchildren. Be faithful for Babylon. And I'm coming, and there's coming a day when I will take the exiles, and I will pick them up, and I will take them back to Jerusalem, and the promised land will once again be there. So what does this have to do with you and me? Well, we're living in exile. We're in the time between the times. We're between the garden and the city. We are looking back with fear at how we failed in the garden and how we continue to fail today, and we look forward, as the Bible says, with groaning and longing for the day when Jesus returns, establishes eternal kingdom, and all is made right again. And in the time between the times, I'm convinced God is saying to us, we work now for shalom as a foreshadowing. It's like a movie trailer, right? You go to the movies and you watch the trailers right before the movie comes on. It's like a movie trailer of what is coming ahead of us. We are ambassadors and representatives of an embassy for the kingdom of God. Let me close with this story. Two and a half years ago, my family came in January of, uh, what would that have been, 2017. January of 2017, we were here in Joburg to adopt my son. We went to Lesotho, spent a couple weeks there, went up to Katsi, and then came back down and then drove back to Johannesburg. And uh, we were staying down in the south of the city, but we had to come up to Santon to do some medical tests, and then we had to go to the American Embassy. And we went to the American Embassy, and uh, it was so fascinating to me. You see the American flag, and that's meaningful for us, you know, and... I walk in the gates, and all of a sudden, just like that, everybody sounds like me. All the English got fixed again, you know, all of a sudden. It's like miraculous. Just kidding. I know we're the ones with the bad English. I get all that, so anyway. I mean, everybody sound, they sound like military. I grew up a military kid. My dad retired from the military after 20 years in the Air Force and then became a pastor. So when I walk in and I see those military uniforms, man, it's nostalgic. It feels like home. Now, in that embassy, there's an ambassador. You understand that the ambassador of that embassy has zero power of his own. There's no power, no authority of their own. All of their power and authority is conveyed by the government that they represent. Here's what I want you to understand. The Church of Jesus Christ, more specifically the Barn Christian Fellowship, is an embassy of the kingdom of God. And every person who makes up the barn is an ambassador for King Jesus. You have no power or authority of your own, right? We're not powerful. In fact, if anything, if we're really brutally honest, we're incredibly weak. We're broken in need of redemption and Jesus. But we have great power and great authority because our great king has conveyed to us his power and his authority. And he calls us as ambassadors of the king to go in the power of God to establish the shalom of the kingdom of heaven. To declare to those around us this is what it looks like when King Jesus rules and reigns. And to invite those people around us to join us in the kingdom of our great king. May it be so. May it be so. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray in just a moment. 
and ask that the Lord would bless us as we get ready to wrap up the service. But I want to encourage you, if you are here today and you have never begun to walk with Jesus, people say, how do I know that I'm a follower of Christ? The Bible gives us a number of indications of how we can know this. The Bible says, has your life been changed? If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Do you love one another? The Bible, Jesus, in fact, said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Are you persisting in the faith? The Bible says those who persevere to the end will be saved. These are the ways we know that we're walking with Jesus. So everybody's heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I'm gonna pray, but I want you to just give consideration to this question first. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you been saved? If not, your number one need this morning is to just say to him, God, I am broken. There's sin in my life. There is rebellion against the king of the universe in my life, and I need you to forgive me, and I need you to save me, and I need to begin walking in faith with you. For the rest of us who are followers of Jesus, the question is, what kind of an ambassador are we? Are we reflecting the, the kingdom of heaven? Are we going in the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus? Are we seeking the shalom of the city? Are we disgruntled? Are we angry? Do we just wish we could leave this place behind, move out of here, go to somewhere better? Or can we be content where we are believing that God has placed us here for this time and this moment and called us to be his ambassadors, seeking shalom, reflecting the kingdom of heaven in this place we call home?